Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, which you should have your Bibles, if you don't have your Bibles, there should be a Bible nearby, so please take it up, and we're going to be in Psalm 63. And while you're turning there, I want to address the elephant in the room, like last time. I'm not as bearded as I used to be. <laughs> Such is life. Got hot. I made some bad decisions. But it's growing back. So, <clears throat> Your lack of laughter proves something to me. I'm called to preach, not to be a comedian. But before we go to God's word, um, let's go to him in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are the God who wants to be known and who has made himself known. Lord, by your works of creation, in your general revelation, but also you have made yourself known to us more deeply, more intimately through your holy word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would now come and illuminate that which you have inspired to our hearts. Use your word to conform us to the image of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. For those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Human beings are desiring creatures. Can you not hear me? <clears throat> Is this better? Human beings are desiring creatures. 
from the time that we are born, we want. There's a few of you in here that I know can give immediate testimony to that truth. A baby does not hide his desire. When he's hungry, he cries until he is fed. When he's uncomfortable, he cries until his mother or father meets his needs. You do not have to teach a child to desire. We are born desiring. Think of a little one in a grocery store. As you walk down the aisles, every colorful package catches their little eyes. Mama, I want that. I used to work in a grocery store a long time ago. I saw this like every 10 minutes. Anytime you're in the, the cereal section, most of all. Mama, I want that. Can I have that? What about this? Can I have that? We're born desiring creatures. We are of our very nature desiring creatures. And in reality, not much changes when we get older. The, uh, the cereal aisle gets a little bigger. That's about it. We still desire. We still want. In fact, that we desire, the fact that we do desire, is a good thing. It is a very good thing. The human capacity for desire was placed within us by God himself for our good. It is not a result of the fall. The fact that you have desires is not a result of the fall. Desire is a good thing. The problem isn't that we desire, but that our desires are so often for the wrong things. We desire that which is outside of the bounds that God has set for human beings. Temptation wouldn't exist if we had no desires. The Apostle James writes this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We are tempted to sin because so much of our desire, even as Christians, is for the things of this world. Temptation to sin comes through inordinate desires, desires that are untamed and misdirected. But the capacity for desire was never meant to be used for such things. A desire for sin is evidence of the brokenness of the human creature. It's not wrong that you want. It's wrong that you want the wrong things. It's wrong that you want sin. And should the creature be given everything that he desired, quite frankly, it still wouldn't be enough. We were given the ability to desire so that we might desire the only truly desirable one. God. God is the only one who can truly fulfill our desire because he is the one for whom we were made desiring beings. Oh God, you are my God. 
earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's not the land around us right now, by the way. But I don't, you know, I don't think it's uh, too far of a stretch for us to imagine where David's at right now. What is the blessing of the desert? According to the subtitle of this psalm, this, this psalm was written during David's time in the wilderness, or at least when David was reflecting upon that time, right? There were at least two times when David had been driven into the wilderness. The first time was when he was on the run from Saul and spent what was likely a few years to a couple of decades in the wild deserts of Israel. The second time David found himself in the wilderness was when he was on the run from his own son Absalom, who had vengefully taken the throne. On both of these occasions, God's anointed king, the man after God's own heart, was pressed into some of the harshest and most unforgiving terrain on earth. I've never been to Israel, but I've been to Egypt. I've driven through the Sahara between Cairo and Alexandria, and this is still fairly close to the Nile, and there's just nothing there. You can look and look and look as far as you can see. You might see, uh, as, I, as I used to remark, a fat guy riding on a camel. I don't know where he came from because there's no food around. I don't know how he got fat. But, um, sorry, that's probably a little inappropriate. But, <clears throat> but there's nothing there. Like this is, These are some of the harshest and most unforgiving terrains on earth. Usually when I think of the wilderness... I think of the forests and the mountains that were my playground when I was a kid. I'm from southeastern Kentucky. I think I've mentioned that before. All about me were rivers and lakes and branches dancing down from the mountains. I remember uh, when the blackberries were growing. Oh, man, this is my favorite time of year. Because I would start uh, at the beginning of the trail, start eating them then. By the time I got to the end of the trail, like I was sick of blackberries because I'd eaten so many of them. The wilderness that comes to my mind is the beautiful land described in Psalm 65. This is also David speaking. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. That's the wilderness that I'm thinking of. But the wilderness in which David found himself was not like my mountains. It is not like what we're seeing out here right now. It was dry and it was weary. I think that's a good descriptor. Weary. It's tired of being itself. That's how bad this place is. Hot and filled with dust, with the few oases and waterways being watched by the enemies of God's anointed. Each day must have become more burdensome than the day before under the oppressive heat of the desert mountains. On top of this, both times that David was wandering in the wilderness, he was there through exile. He was away from his home. He was away from his family. He was away from every creature comfort. 
But brothers and sisters, listen to this man's prayer. He doesn't pray for water. His soul thirsts for God. His body doesn't faint for lack of food. He faints because he's hungry for the Lord. How earnestly does King David seek the Lord in the sorrow of his soul and the desperate straits in which he finds himself? He doesn't seek relief from his situation first. Rather, David seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Hunted and hated by the enemies who only long to put him to death, David rejoices and trusts in his God. His greatest need, he recognizes, is not to be delivered from his situation. That's usually where our minds go, right? Whenever bad things happen. God, heal so-and-so. God, help me out of this sticky spot. And it's not wrong to pray those things. But that's not where David's mind goes first. His greatest need, even in the most dire of situations, is to know God better and rejoice in him more fully. David's love for the Lord is a witness to the truth that more than fame, more than comfort, more than bread and water and air and all things needful, God is all-satisfying. It's a beautiful truth. David looks back as well, but, but not on the times that he reclined at table in the palace or when he spent, most, or spent those uh, many friendly hours with his spiritual friend, Jonathan. No, he looks, he looks back to the time when he would join the rest of the congregation of Israel to worship in the splendor of holiness at God's sanctuary. When he looks back on the good times, he's essentially looking back on going to church. It's like... What joy I had. Listen to this. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. That's what he looks back on in this distress. The hardest part for David about his exile was that he was so far away from the sanctuary. Oh, how he yearns to be in God's presence again. David had been captivated by the glory, by the beauty of God. There was nothing that he desired more than to be in the presence of God and to worship him forever. Friends, is this not the hope of heaven? The believer has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But here, we are as exiles in this fallen world, seemingly so far away from God's kingdom. Here, though we know his presence we long to know him more fully, to see him in all his glory and power. Here so much of sin and brokenness remains that we see only through a glass darkly. And we long for the day when we shall see him face to face. This has been the longing of the people of God since the beginning. The apostle writes, these all, that's the, the patriarchs and the prophets of Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Brothers and sisters, you who know the Lord and have seen his radiant glory in the person of Jesus Christ, do you not long for him? Is there anything in this world that can be compared to knowing him for all eternity? If there is, if you find as sweet a joy in the things of this desert wilderness as you find in our glorious God, then there's nothing to draw you heavenward. Heaven will not be heaven for you. There's an old saying, everybody wants to go to heaven. You, you probably finish this, right? Everybody wants to go, go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I don't think that's true. That is, I don't think everybody does want to go to heaven. The coming kingdom will fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. For the Christian, this is the consummation of joy. It is the fullness of every desire. But for those who do not know God, who do not desire God, it is not possible for them to rejoice at this. The kingdom of God is not heaven because of streets of gold. That's a metaphor, by the way. The kingdom of God is heaven because the presence and consummated rule of Jesus Christ. He is what makes heaven, heaven. Those who long for the mansion over the hilltop without the presence and kingship, kingship of God do not truly desire heaven, and they will not inherit it. Scripture's plain about that. But we exiles and sojourners know the steadfast love of our God, and it's the love that will not let us go. The love that will not let us rest in lesser things. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. There are many in our time who desire the many earthly blessings of God. Houses, lands, a family and friends, health and wealth. And although there's nothing wrong with these things in themselves, it's too often the case that the only time those who receive these gifts are apt to praise God is when they receive them. I'll praise God if I win the lottery, right? I'll praise God when everything goes well for me, when my car fixes itself and I don't have to take it to a mechanic. Praise God. I don't think that's ever happened to me. And when these things are taken away, the people withhold their praises until they see the blessings again. 
How few there are who say with Job, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And there are many others who long to see powerful workings. My Kentucky always comes out on that word, powerful. It's technically powerful, but it's actually powerful. There are many others who long to see powerful workings and miracles from the hand of God. When these manifestations of power come, those who have awaited them are driven to praise God. But give it a while. They're often forgotten, and the praises come to an end. You know, you're healed from something that the doctor said, you know, there's nothing we can do. And God's, boom, you're healed. The doctor doesn't know what I know. Can't do what I do. And for, you know, maybe a couple years, you're like, wow, praise God. He healed me. That's great. But then eventually you're more like, wow, praise God. He healed me. That's great. There are many like I said, who, who long to see these powerful workings and the miracles from the hand of God. But when these manifestations of power come, those who have awaited them are driven to praise God, but they are often forgotten. The praises come to an end. Do not mistake me. We should praise God for his mighty working and his gracious gifts. But David, and indeed David's greater son, Jesus, teaches us a still more excellent way. The steadfast love of God given us through the covenant made by the blood of his son is such a treasure that there is nothing to be compared with it. Not even the gift of life. When I die, all of my wealth will pass to another. All of my wealth. A few books will pass to another. I just got out of seminary, folks. Just got, well, it's been a few months. I still don't have anything. Um, all of my wealth will pass to another. My family, my friends, they're going to grieve for me. But eventually they'll move forward. And even if they don't, eventually they'll die too. My house will crumble to dust. All of these things are temporal. But while my body lies sleeping in the ground and my bones have crumbled into dust, my God will still love me. His goodness and mercy will follow me even to the grave. And His great love in Christ will one day join my soul to a resurrected body that I may dwell with Him in His house forever. I have never seen a person raised from the dead. Nor have I beheld with my own eyes the creation of the universe out of nothing, but I have known the love of the infinitely holy God for an undeserving sinner like me. And therein is a miracle to keep me forever in all, forever praising. His steadfast love is better even than the gift of my life, says David. So as long as I have life, I'll praise you. My joy my greatest desire. As long as I have breath, let that breath turn into praise. David continues. 
My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. The feasting tables of kings are filled with the finest of foods to satisfy their, the palate of their subjects. The meats, the breads, the fruits, and vegetables are so delicately prepared by the chef as to draw the best taste from the food itself and the praises from the mouths that consume it. But there is no food so delicious as the thought of God. How sweet are those thoughts, those meditations upon God as he has revealed himself in his word. If you're not studying the Bible, you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing. It just blows my mind when people say the Bible's boring. You're boring. The Bible's magnificent. God reveals himself there. We were talking about it this morning in Sunday school. Truly blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. I would come again and again to a chef who had prepared a delicious feast and praise him to my friends and others. How much more should I be ever at the feast of God, indulging in the delicacies of his table and praising him before all mankind? How often, though, during the day, and you may have this experience as well, either that or... Well, let's be honest. I probably am a worse sinner than you guys. I know my own sin. I don't know yours. But I, but I do think that this is usually common. How often during the day am I unable to give my full focus to this meditation? My mind distracted by work and by other necessities of daily life. Wouldn't it be so great if all we had to do for the rest of our lives was study the Bible, and pray. But I work at Barnes & Noble. So I have arguments with old ladies about who wrote such and such a book. And then when I prove them wrong, they walk out of the store. Anyway. <laughs> but the same thing I think could be true for David on the run for his life in the middle of the wilderness we do him a disservice to think that because he's thousands of years removed from our fast-paced time that he was somehow less distracted. He was on the run for his life in the grueling heat of the Middle Eastern desert. Like I said, I have, I have arguments with old ladies about who wrote such and such a book and where we can find it in the store. David was being hunted down by a guy who wanted to kill him both times that he was in the wilderness. I think his life was a little more hectic than mine. He was on the run for his life. But in the nighttime, while, while his men slept all around him, the sweet psalmist of Israel kept watch with the Lord. 
feasting at his table in the moonlight. Charles Spurgeon writes this, Night is congenial in its silence and darkness to a soul which would forget the world and rise into a higher sphere. Absorption in the most hallowed of all themes makes watches which else would be weary glide away all too rapidly. It causes the lonely and hard couch to yield the most delightful repose, repose more restful than even sleep itself. Some revel in the night, but they are not a tenth so happy as those who meditate in God. In other words, some people party at night. Man, you guys are missing out. Saturday night partiers, you're missing out. I'm at home reading the word. You're calling me a nerd, and I'm like, you know what? All right. I can deal with that. I'm getting ready for the Sabbath. What are you doing? Anyway, um, I I can give personal testimony, especially to this night thing. I remember when I was, like, I was on a mission trip in Ethiopia, and we were in a town that was pretty rough most of the time. Uh, there were walls around the compound, and the walls were there for a reason, not just for show. Um, I remember one night I woke up, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and like everything just hit me. Like it's hot, like there was no air conditioning. I have a mosquito net around me, and I can hear the mosquitoes outside the net. And quite frankly, when you're in Africa, that's one of the most terrifying noises to hear. But because, I mean, you can get malaria, right? From one mosquito bite and die. And just everything just hit me where I was. And it was the middle of the night, and I'm like, I need to go to the Word. I need to read. I need to pray. I think I prayed for like maybe two and a half hours, three hours. And the rest of my time in Africa, like I moved from Ethiopia to Kenya to another pretty rough town. Like my soul was at peace because I knew God was with me. And those nights, you know, before I would go to bed, I was in the word. I was in prayer because I needed to know he was present. I needed to know he was there. How do you spend the hours that that you're not absorbed by your daily work? I commend to you the practice of study and prayer. This might seem overly practical, right? Well, this is the reality. I commend to you the practice of study and prayer. Go into the quiet hours to feast at the table of God. Don't waste that precious time on lesser pleasures and entertainments. Don't fill your gullet with mud pies when you're offered to feast at the king's table. Soul that delights in God, go to him in the night and sit at his feet. How much sweeter would be our rest if we put down the entertainments that so distract us, the Facebook, uh, uh, TV. Oh, no, those are the only two things that I can think of right now. YouTube. Like I said, according to some, I live a very boring life, but it's not. But how much sweeter would be our rest 
if we put down the entertainments that so distract us and took up our Bibles before we closed our eyes. And as soon as we open them again, when you have time that you're wasting on lesser things, stop wasting your time on lesser things. Like some people say, well, you know, I wouldn't encourage you to just give up TV or give up Facebook. It's like, if that's distracting you from the Word of God, throw it out the window. If these lesser entertainments are distracting you from finding your joy in God, throw it out the window. Like I said, you know, how much sweeter would be our rest if instead of being distracted by these entertainments, we took up our Bibles and went to God in prayer. Come unto me, says our Lord to the weary, and I will give you rest. Then David continues, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Recount for a moment the life of David and how he had come to the wilderness. He'd been a shepherd boy, the least of the sons of Jesse, and by God's empowering presence, he had stood against the giant before whom the armies of Israel cowered. He had been secretly anointed king by the prophet Samuel and had become the chief soldier in the army of Israel defeating the enemies of God's people in the name of the Lord. He had been welcomed into the palace of King Saul, who would later go mad and try to kill him, driving David to flee for his life in the wilderness. Later in life, after he had become king, his own son Absalom would rise against him, taking Jerusalem and driving him into the wilderness yet again. The psalmist pleads to the Lord um, in Psalm 132, remember in David's favor all the hardships he endured. Yet through it all, God upheld him and established his throne just as he had promised. From the line of David would come our King Jesus, the greater son of David, who will rule forever. And through it all, David followed after God, sometimes with faltering step. And it's kind of hard to tell the story of David. What, What did I leave out? His sin with Bathsheba. And I would say his sin as a father for not punishing his son for raping his daughter. He was still, he followed after God, and sometimes he faltered, sometimes he sinned. But David's sin and repentance should remind us that though we cling to God, God is always holding us more surely. We will falter and fail, but his great love remains steadfast, and we are forever covered by the blood of Christ. We are reconciled to God by Christ's blood. We are free to delight in him, not because we are sinless, but because God is faithful and forgiving. Every one of us who has been united to Christ has never-ending cause to sing 
and rejoice in the shadow of his wings. For hidden in Christ we are saved from the just wrath of God against sin. Blessed be God forever. He is the all-satisfying one. And there is nothing in this world worth comparing to him. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I want God. If you're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to want God too. If you don't want God at all, you should ask some questions. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. But David ends this psalm by asserting his faith that the Lord will take care of him. For those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now, rejoicing in God doesn't mean that we're somehow taken out of every difficult situation. I think I've already mentioned that. It doesn't mean that you're taken out of every difficult situation in which we find ourselves. Remember, David is writing from the wilderness on the run for his life. But at the same time, those who delight themselves in God who put their faith in the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God, don't need to worry. God will take care of them. God will take care of you. God speaks through the psalmist in Psalm 91, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Our Lord Jesus teaches us that we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all things needful for this earthly life will be given to us. The faithfulness of God frees us from worry. So that we may devote more of our thoughts not to the anxieties and the troubles of this world, not to the things of this world, not to the flesh to satisfy the desires thereof, but to his glory, to his beauty shining forth from the word revealed to us through the illumination of his Holy Spirit. We each of us have very real problems, very real enemies. I'm not denying that for a minute. But let us never forget that we also have a very real God. And he should be all our delight. So in conclusion, do you know the Lord for whom David thirsted? Can you say that his steadfast love is better even than your life? Are your eyes focused on the gifts of our God or on the hand of the giver? That which we delight in most will hold our thoughts and our praises. Honestly examine your thoughts and meditations. Many are his loving thoughts toward you. Are your thoughts of him now few? Friends, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Delight yourself in him, for he offers himself to you freely and fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you desire this glorious God? Let's pray. Lord, like the man who came to you saying that he believed, but still asked you to help his unbelief, we come to you saying we desire, but we don't desire you nearly enough. Lord, help us to desire you more, to love you more, to meditate upon you more, and to praise you more, for you are worthy of all of our praise. God, you are glorious and great. And great is your steadfast love toward us, Lord, those who do not deserve it, but upon whom you pour your grace and mercy. Through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anything that's holding us back, from delighting more in you. Take it from us. Open our eyes to it and let us be done with it. Show us your glory and help us to delight, Lord, in you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.